Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, as always, Nico Perino. As a young undergraduate at Indiana University, I often walked past an etching above the entrance to one of our main campus buildings. The etching was a quote from John Milton's famous treatise on free expression, Areopagitica, and it read, A good book is the precious lifeblood of a master spirit, embalmed and treasured up on purpose to a life beyond life. I'll never forget that quote and its implication that books are more than just convenient ways to impart information. They are also a piece of someone's life, their ideas, their work, and as Milton said, their spirit. As the book lives, so does the individual who wrote it, a form of immortality. But if a book is more than just a book, so too is the act of destroying a book more significant than the loss of ink on the page. Throughout human history, libraries and books have been deliberately burned sometimes in an attempt to control information, sometimes in an attempt to control a population. Regardless, in either case, humanity loses a bit of its past. On today's episode, we are going to discuss a new book that covers the history of the deliberate destruction of knowledge called Burning the Books. And to do so, we are joined by the author, Richard Ovenden. Richard is the director of the Bodleian Libraries at the University of Oxford and a fellow of Balliol College. He was awarded the Order of the British Empire in 2019. He is a member of the American Philosophical Society and serves as treasurer of the Consortium of European Research Libraries and president of the Digital Preservation Coalition. Richard Ovenden, welcome onto the show. Thank you. It's great to be chatting with you. So let's start, uh, I guess, with the beginning. By way of background, what first got you interested in becoming a librarian, and how did you find your way to one of the world's greatest libraries, the Bodleian Library? Well, I started my career um, as a librarian, actually as a student. So in my university as an undergraduate, uh, I w- which was at Durham in the north of England, I was in a small college, and in order to earn some money, I became a student librarian. And I'd been um, as a a schoolboy to my local library, uh, my public library in the small town that I grew up in. So I knew, I thought I knew what libraries were like. But my college library was very kind of old fashioned and it had um, uh, a, a kind of quirky collection because it had been a theological college originally. And I went back um, one summer vacation to work for the college to move what was called the secondary sequence in order to enlarge the college bar. And that secondary sequence um, that I was paid over the summer to, to work on had some extraordinary rare books and manuscripts in it. And I knew nothing about them. I went across to um, the university library and knocked on somebody's door to ask for some advice. What should I do with these ancient books? And the person who I was shown to for advice had a brass plaque on her door that said, Keeper of Rare Books. And I thought, 
Ooh, that's a really good job title. I would like to do that someday. And she was incredibly kind and supportive um, of me and my career and gave me good advice and gave me a job after I graduated for a year as a trainee librarian. And from there, really, that set me off on my career. And I went to graduate school. And then after graduate school, I went and got a job in the House of Lords in the Palace of Westminster, the Parliament of England, um, and worked as a political researcher, librarian um, in the House of Lords Library, um, and then to the National Library of Scotland, um, to one of the kind of great libraries in uh, the northern part of Britain in, in Scotland, and worked in the rare books department there. And then I moved just a few hundred yards um, in the same city in Edinburgh to the university library there and um, had a kind of slightly broader role. Um, I was responsible not just for archives and special collections in the library, but also for the university art gallery and the university museums. And then in 2003, I moved south, took my family with me, and got a job in the Bodleian, really one of the world's great libraries, and um, had have had a number of roles there, from keeper of special collections to associate director to deputy librarian. And then in 2014, I became the Grand Fromage, um, the big cheese of the Bodleian, um, an ancient title called Bodley's Librarian, um, which goes back to 1600, and I'm the 25th person since then to hold the title. Wow. The, the Bodleian, as you mentioned, is one of the world's great libraries, has a super rich co collection. What's your favorite book in that collection? Oh, now that's a difficult question. <laughs> I mean, it, it changes a lot. Uh, every time one of my colleagues shows me something or we have a special visitor and we, we, we kind of trawl the collections for things which we think they might be interested in, uh, I see something new. But I think my current favorite is a book called The Codex Mendoza, which was written in Mexico in the 1520s by a scribe who had been an Aztec priest. And he was asked, probably forced, to write in the Mixtec language, this kind of pictogrammic language, um, a depiction of the life of people in uh, the Aztec territories. And it was written into a blank paper book, which was made of paper milled in Spain and taken across the Atlantic by the conquistadors. And uh, it was filled with these extraordinary drawings, this extraordinary document, which you know, tells you, for example, how Aztec people disciplined their children. Well, what they did is they took them under their arm and they held their faces over a fire, and in the fire they put chilies. And it's full of these extraordinary stories, incredible color, incredible beauty, an incredible kind of glimpse into uh, a lost civilization. And then the book was sent back on a ship to... Um, Spain to the emperor's collection, but the ship was hijacked in the Caribbean by French pirates, and it was diverted to um, the court of France, to the court of Henri IV, where it was given to his chief scientific officer, or what we today would call the chief scientific officer, 
a man called Andre Teve, um, who then traded it with an Englishman, um, the chaplain of the English embassy to Paris. Um, uh, and he, and it was really through him that it came to the Bodleian's collection in the 1650s um, through the gift of a, a great man, a lawyer called John Selden. I want to turn now to your book, The Burning the Books Project. When did that begin? What was the precipitating event? Well, I've been concerned for some time about the kind of the complacency with which society was, you know, sort of treating the preservation of knowledge, the preservation of ideas, of information, of data, of facts. And we've become a society so used to access, so so with such a great focus on access that I think we've been neglecting the importance of preservation. So that's the kind of background. The real trigger for me was the um, uh, reading a news report, an investigative journalist wrote uh, an account of in 2018, in April 2018, in the UK, of the destruction of landing records by the UK government's Home Office. And it it struck me, it really made me angry, actually, because at the same time, the same government department was imposing a very, very strict and highly controversial immigration policy, which was known as the hostile environment. And it was hostile because they were pursuing people who had been in our country for many years, who had been invited over, many of them, um, shortly after World War II from the former colonies to come and work in Britain. And they were then being pursued to prove their right to remain in the UK. And the same department that was instigating this policy had in its own collection the very evidence that those individuals could use to prove their right to remain. But they deliberately destroyed it. And it struck me that this act was an indication of how socially vital it is to preserve knowledge. And so I wrote um, an op-ed in the Financial Times newspaper and the next day, I got a, uh, a, an email from a publisher saying this would make a very interesting book. And uh, two years later, uh, here we are. It's published in the United States um, uh, just last week. You know, and it, it is a fascinating history. Burning the Book shares the history of the destruction of knowledge by sharing the stories of high-profile incidents of such destruction over the course of millennia. Uh, now, one of the first incidents you discuss in your book, and perhaps one of the best known, is the destruction of the library at Alexandria. Now, this is <laughs> this is the stuff of lore. Everyone has their own tale of how it happened. What does our best modern scholarship say happened to that famed library? Well, I grew up too thinking that you know the the Library of Alexandria, the kind of you know the world's greatest library of uh, among the ancient civilizations which stored all of human knowledge as it was known at the time, went up in a great conflagration. And modern scholars now um, argue very convincingly, to me at any rate, that there was no single act of destruction. There were fires, there were moments where... um, uh, where collections in the library were destroyed... But the only thing that the ancient writers actually agree on, that there was a great library at one point, and then by the 4th or 5th century, the library had gone. And it's really what happened in that 
intervening um, three or four centuries after writers like Strabo, the great geographer, who recorded um, seeing books in the library, he he consulted its collections as a scholar um, in the you know the first century of the Christian era. So. What really happened, I think, was that there were a series of small-scale fires. Some of them may have um, destroyed thousands of books in, in the form of papyrus scrolls. But actually what happened was a process of neglect. You know, the Library of Alexandria was started off as a royal project in the um, you know, in the 4th or 5th century before Christ. And um, the great Ptolemaic rulers of Alexandria who founded the library gave it great resources. They gave it money to build an extraordinary series of buildings. They gave money for it to be stocked with books. They passed laws that any ship coming into the great port that had manuscripts on them should give them up so that they could be copied in the library. And um, therefore, the collections grew by this act of copying. And they populated the library with scholars who could both administer the collections and create new knowledge by their scholarship, by their consulting the, the documents in, in the library's care. But over time, that status changed and the rulers of Alexandria no longer thought it was appropriate to give it funding. And that period of decline then over centuries resulted in the library being finally destroyed or finally abandoned perhaps we don't know exactly how it how it left us we don't even have any uh, uh, remains any site in the the city of alexandria today that archaeologists or scholars agree was the site of the great library or one of the two sites as it was probably split over two sites and we don't have any texts that might have escaped this destruction that we can point to or that we know of yeah, absolutely. There were texts which, um, you know, were, were known that were copied by other institutions. You know, there was a period of copying texts in the library that um, by Roman uh, by Roman scholars and Roman libraries. So um, we do have some, you know, actually quite a good indication of uh, things that are in the library. There was a kind of form of catalogue called the Pinakis, which um, uh, was formed by one of the librarians, Callimachus. So we have you know, some idea that there were great riches there, many of which actually have passed down to us. But there are also indications that there were texts there of which no copies of your book is as much a story of the efforts to destroy knowledge as it is the story of efforts to save it. Um, and, and in that sense, one of the heroes or somewhat heroes of your book is this man named John Leland. Who was he and why should we care? <laughs> well, John Leland, I, d I don't know if you, any of your listeners have uh, read the, the novels of Hilary Mantel um, about Thomas Cromwell. Um, they become, you know, kind of great successes. There's been a TV series uh, and a great uh, Broadway show. Um, and I kind of wish that Hilary Mantel would have mentioned John Leland because he's a figure that kind of leaps out of um, that period with great, um, in a very kind of vivid manner to me. And that's partly because my library, the Bodleian, actually has his archive, his notes. So he was charged in the 1530s by Henry VIII 
with looking for evidence to support the king's uh, desire to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, and to marry a uh, beautiful young courtier, Anne Boleyn. And then to also to find evidence to support um, the king's desire to separate from the Church of Rome, what we now call the, the Reformation, the English Reformation. Um, and so Leland went on this extraordinary journey. Uh, they're known today by scholars as his itineraries. And he traveled across the country, uh, visiting hundreds of libraries, most of them in religious houses, in monasteries and, um, and other great uh, religious institutions. And he took notes. He, uh, we know exactly the books that he looked at, and uh, we know the libraries that he was very interested in. And he passed these notes back to Henry and to some of his other kind of key courtiers like um uh, like Thomas Cranmer and uh, and Thomas Cromwell and these lists actually were then used partly as kind of shopping lists so um as the reformation progressed the religious houses were dissolved and uh, many of the heads of the houses were executed and the properties were passed into royal ownership. And many of the books that were in these collections are now in the Royal Library, which is today part of the British Library. Um, and so Leland became unwittingly, although he was a great bibliophile, he loved books. He loved um, visiting many of these libraries. And we know that from the, the notes that he kept. But he was unwittingly responsible for their destruction, for the breakup of these collections. Some of them survived by being passed into the Royal Library, but most of the others were torn up and sold as scrap to uh, for pie makers to line pie dishes. And there was a, a phrase at the time that books were dog cheap and whole libraries could be had for an inconsiderable nothing. So Leland, at the end of his life, looked back on this period, you know, one of the most tumultuous periods in English history. And he was so horrified that his own actions led to the breakup of hundreds of great libraries that he went mad. He he did try and save some of the books, though, didn't he? He did try to save some of them. And, and some of them passed into his own collections, and some, as I mentioned, passed into the Royal Library. So they were preserved. But really, it was only a tiny fraction um, of, the, of the collections that had been there when Leland, in the middle of the 1530s, went on these great journeys um, to look at the libraries. So, um, you know, I think probably fewer than 10% of the books um, that, that were on the eve of the Reformation in those libraries um, have now passed down to us. Wow. And I want to come back to Book Hunters, but I want to do it at the end of the conversation. Next up, I want to talk about how not all destruction comes from outsiders. Sometimes it comes from the creators themselves. Can you talk about the dueling cases of Franz Kafka and Philip Larkin? Yeah, well, these are these are. I was very interested in the idea of who controls history, who controls the legacy of the past, who controls the reputation, not just of communities or entire countries, but of individuals. And I I chose a number of writers to look at this question from, and there are two kind of contrasting cases, uh, and one of them is of the great writer Franz Kafka, who. Um, you know, was regarded today as the one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, certainly regarded as the greatest writer in the German language. And, um, uh, you know, he's entered 
entered our our everyday language. We talk of you know uh, things being Kafka esque. But what Kafka did, um, and in 2024 will we'll mark the centenary of his death, is write, actually publish very little in his lifetime. And most of his works that we enjoy today um, were are posthumously published. And so in his latter, um, his latter year, he gave instructions to his great friend, um, the publisher, writer, editor, Max Broad, who he asked to destroy his unpublished writings. And Broad was such a kind of devoted follower, but also um, a great admirer of Kafka's writing, that he chose to disobey those instructions. And he kept the archive together. He was on the last, pretty much the last train out of Prague in 1939 before uh, the Nazis uh, entered the city. And so he was responsible for both preserving the collection of unpublished writings and then publishing, then seeing them through the press, um, through a a series of publication efforts. So it's really thanks to that um, disobeying uh, the, uh, the instructions to destroy that we have this great trove of writings by Kafka. He co- I contrast that in my book with the, the brilliant poet Philip Larkin, um, you know, again, one of the great poets in the English language in the latter part of the 20th century and a former librarian. He was uh, the librarian of the University of Hull in the north of England. And again, Larkin left very explicit instructions to his lover, Monica Jones, and to his secretary, Betty Macarith, that his unpublished notebooks, his journals, should be destroyed at his death. And so Betty took the notebooks um, from his uh, desk drawer in his office in the in the library. She tore the pages out. We still actually have the covers, the bindings of these of these journals. Um, and she fed them through the office shredder. And then just to be doubly sure, she took the bag of shredded papers down to the library incinerator and burned them. And so we have none of those innermost thoughts of uh, Larkin's, the, the innermost thoughts that he was anxious would not pass down. Um, and, um, you know, scholars have tried to kind of reconstruct those from his correspondence because he was a very kind of diligent correspondent um, to the kind of key people in his life. Um, but, you know, there there are two kind of contrasting cases there, Kafka and Larkin, um, and and the, the role that preservation of that knowledge in, in the case of Kafka has, how much that has enriched um, the cultural life of the world. How should we think about balancing the wishes of content creators, such as Franz Kafka and Philip Larkin, who do not want their their creations to be preserved for history, but also the societal interest in preserving that history? And I'm thinking also about how privacy considerations factor in the equation, and in particular, Europe's right to to be forgotten law. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think I think it's a very difficult area. There is there there are no kind of clear cut, um, uh, you know, there there are no kind of clear cut guide guidelines that I could suggest or point to. I think that um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, 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 the private wishes of an individual are are you, you know of of huge importance. Um, 
and so you know there are there are many instances where I think it's it's absolutely right to um, to follow through from those those wishes and privacy is is you know hugely important in an age where we are constantly surveilled when we interact with digital media in particular. And I think that the right to be forgotten, which is a, a European law associated with, um, uh, you, you know, Europe-wide legislation from across the European Community, and that's more about. Um, it's not so much of destroying knowledge, but rendering it impossible to find by allowing individuals to insist on the removal of index entries in the search engine indexes, rather than allowing people to kind of erase the past by um, removing removing web pages themselves the the pages it's the index it's the act of searching that's disrupted by the by the right to be forgotten so I think there are kind of you know each case really has to be taken on its own merits um, Max Broad argued that um, uh, he you know Kafka knew, that Broad wouldn't go through with the instructions and therefore by tasking Broad with the act, he was kind of sort of um, tacitly agreeing to the, the, the preservation. You know, I, I, whether or not that was the case, we'll, we'll kind of never know. But, um, you know, I'm glad that he saved the, the, the unpublished papers. One of the most recent examples that we have of the destruction of cultural heritage comes from uh, the Islamic State, ISIS. Uh, they seem to me to be, in some part, most notoriously known for the destruction of, of physical sites such as Palmyra and Nimrud, but they also are stole or destroyed collections from, I, I believe it was the Central Library of Mosul, which I think they rigged with explosives. Uh, there was a library at the University of Mosul and, and then the museum library there as well. You know, this is recent. Your interest in preserving history, were you involved in trying to preserve any of that history, part of any of the discussions that archivists or librarians were having as to try and save those collections? You know, and, and what was the thinking about including it or not including it in your book? Um, well, I, I didn't include the uh, ISIS very in any great kind of detail in my book, and that's partly because I'd kind of run out of space, and there are so many instances of the deliberate destruction of knowledge that I could have filled, unfortunately, probably four or five books of the same size. So um, my case studies are kind of deliberately selective. I do have um, a chapter devoted to Iraq in the book, which is actually about uh, a slightly different issue, which perhaps we could come on to later. But I, I think going going to ISIS is really, you know, religiously inspired destruction in order to kind of eradicate anything that is deemed to be un-Islamic or, or, or uh, you know, contrary to the extreme Islamic views which um, ISIS perpetrated. And so their, their kind of iconoclasm, their kind of severe interpretation of, um, you know, Islamic doctrine, uh, you know, I, I think became contorted into this um, exercise of raw power and aggression. And, um, you know, it has been an absolutely um, devastating period of time for cultural heritage and for the preservation of knowledge um, in Syria, in, in Iraq, and, um, you know, other parts of the world where Islamic extremism has, has uh, 
had a foothold, you know, in Mali, um, in Timbuktu, for example, you know, well-documented cases there. And I think these are, you know, very modern examples of religiously motivated uh, destruction, which, you know, to some extent go back to the, the Middle Ages and the, the Reformation period. Um, in continental Europe, you find kind of anti-Semitism, um, you know, bringing about great destruction of uh, Jewish uh, knowledge. You find uh, Protestants destroying Catholic texts. You find Catholics destroying Protestant texts, Catholics and Protestants destroying Jewish texts. Um, so there are kind of, you know, multiple examples of that desire to eradicate contrary uh, opinion. But at the same time, there are these kind of heroic acts of preservation. And I think going back to ISIS, I'm sort of evolved very much on the periphery with the um, efforts to rebuild both the Central Library and the University Library in Mosul. And uh, I've hosted um, uh, on several occasions the librarian from Mosul who's uh, come to visit Oxford. And uh, I've given talks um uh, to his uh, group of librarians and um, and part of a UNESCO committee that's um, trying to you know support the rebuilding of the library there, and I think that that that, that those kind of impulses, both from the community of libraries, um, but also from scholars and just kind of lovers of knowledge and lovers of the truth, um, is is really inspiring, and I I, I think it's the latest of ex- example of that desire to kind of rebuild and and to ensure that knowledge can survive that culture and and truth can can survive in support of communities and society on the other side of the coin at the end of the, your book you talk about how there was a denial of service attack on the internet archive uh, for maintaining an archive of isis material i wanted to ask you you know how do, how should we think about efforts by individuals, either either in a vigilante uh, way, such as in a denial of service attack, or a more formal way to prevent access to certain knowledge? I'm thinking of, because they see it as dangerous. I'm thinking here about the ISIS materials, but I'm also thinking of you know more culturally resonant uh, things like Hulu dropping Gone with the Wind because because of its racist themes, or uh, you know similar demands here in the United States to purge the movie Birth of a Nation. How should we think about th- about those efforts? And you know, kind of on, in, the, in the same vein, efforts to deplatform or no platform different speakers. I'm, I'm trying to just see if there's a substantive difference between someone forcibly. Uh, preventing an audience from accessing a material or hearing a speech as opposed to to reading a book? I, I think there is a substantive difference. I mean, I think, you know, if if there was a kind of campaign to destroy every copy of the of Gone with the Wind, I think that would be, you know, something I would get extremely concerned about. That, you know, if it was if it was an attempt to kind of get rid of every every print or every copy of that film um, and to kind of eradicate it from the planet. I think that's, um, I, I, I think that's the focus of my book. That's, that's the real kind of concern that I have. Uh, I think in terms of, you know, issues of, which is really more about censorship of, um, of knowledge. Uh, and um, I, I, I think there are, 
many cases where libraries and other collections or publishers have to be very sensitive to local circumstances. They have to be sensitive to um, the communities which they serve. They have to be sensitive to the kind of the tenor of the time. But I think that, you know, as a rule, I support the, the view that we should be permitting in our society the widest possible articulation of human difference. And I think that um, if content um, incites um, harassment or bullying or intimidation, it should be um, prohibited. Um, but I think otherwise, we we have to accept that free speech is one of the pillars of an open society. It's one of the pillars of uh, a democratic civilization. And uh, alongside um, free elections and independent judiciaries, um, you know, freedom of speech must be um, sort of alongside the preservation of knowledge. And I think that these two things... Um, go side by side, but they are different things. Yeah. And the, the ISIS archive to me seems to be the, the, the test case for this sort of thing. You know, it, it did inspire many people, many from the United States and from the United Kingdom to head to Syria and join this death cult essentially. Um, but at the same time, it is such a historical um, event and the records of it uh, are needed to understand that event that you that you would hate to lose those records, right? Yeah, you know, I they, think they tell us very, something about history. Yes, I think it's very important not to lose those records. I mean, just look at the efforts that have been made to preserve um, Nazi documentation on the Holocaust. You know, I think there is a great concern in uh, you know Jewish communities that this information must be preserved so that we can um, you know point to what happened in the past the ideas that these uh, these individuals in the Nazi regime that you know infected you know much of German society we have to preserve that act we have to preserve that history partly so that we can avoid repeating it now we haven't been too great at that across the world since the uh, since 1945 but i i i really think that we need to we need to preserve those um, incidents so that we can you know try our best to understand the mentality and to uh, avoid it being repeated and uh, so I think, you know, the archivists and librarians have a duty of care when you hold material like that. Um, and I, I, I've certainly, you know, come across instances where, you know, with things like auto-recommending engines that you can see somebody searching for books about, you know, the Holocaust or Nazism, you know, serious historical books get um, a recommendation, a promotion to buy an edition of my, Hitler's Mein Kampf. And I think that's very, I find personally find that kind of very offensive that, you know, that these kind of, you know, uh, AI algorithms would recommend, um, uh, you know, reading Mein Kampf. But I wouldn't say that we should remove Mein Kampf from library collections. I think people should have the opportunity to read it and to understand it, to critique it, to 
help put other things in context to be able to identify where Hitler is being quoted by contemporary politicians or, um, you know, extremists. Um, you know, we need that knowledge to help root our society today um, because it's come from a past. You know, the ideas that are current in society today have come from somewhere and we need to know where that somewhere is and what it was like in order to be able to tackle the problems that we face today. And Mein Kampf can, of course, teach us a lot about the rise of Hitler and Nazism. I mean, having read it myself, it's very hard to come away reading that book and not understanding that the direction that Germany would go in as far as anti-Semitism went and in the final solution went. I mean, it was it was essentially laid out there in Mein Kampf. Um, so it's, imp- it's important to understand it from that historical perspective as well. I wanted to ask you, how much of librarians' work today deals with the digital world up to and including uh, the digitization of physical collections? You know, we think of librarians, we think of physical books and book stacks, uh, but is most of your work today in- involved in the digital world? Um, I, I would say it probably is, um, across my organization, you know, we have, um, we have about 40 buildings. We have, uh, 28 li- library reading library sites. We probably have about 35, 36 reading rooms and we have, you know, 13 million printed volumes, which circulate across our collections or are available for study. And, you know, um, 40 kilometers of archives and manuscripts. So we have a lot of physical collections. But if you look at the data of, you know, interactions with the knowledge that we hold, the majority of those interactions are digital. And they're so they're, you know, the millions of downloads of journal articles. You know, last year we had nearly 18 million searches of our online catalog. Um, we have millions of ebooks available in ebook chapters. We digital, we, you know, we have, you know, 150 million pages of our physical collections in digital form uh, through our digitization activities. So there's, a vast world of digital information out there and what we're really tackling now is the the challenges both of being able to educate our community and how best to search for and utilize that digital information when there's so much of it but also how to preserve it how to ensure that what we look at today in digital form we can trust and rely on to be there even in five or ten years time let alone in 400 years yeah you talk about the case of Flickr in your book this uh, i believe it was Flickr, right Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Flickr, you know, which is just one example of a number of platforms where um, users, both individuals and institutions, have placed uh, images um, and and have thought of them as a kind of tool for preserving those images, a place, a safe place to keep them and to share them and to to be able to to share them. And of course, it's been free. uh, or up to a point it's been free and a couple of years ago you know Flickr announced with actually you know remarkably short notice that they were going to remove 
all um, content held by uh, individual account holders um, up to a certain point. So, you know, the amount of free storage that you had was going to drop. And then after that, you had to pay a fee in order to keep it. And I think, you know, they were facing challenges from uh, platforms like Facebook, which were getting more and more traffic. And so, you know, there will be many individuals and institutions who didn't regularly go back and visit their Flickr site or they didn't get the the email from Flickr telling them what was going to happen and they will have lost their content. And I, so I think, you know, it's really important to realize that these free services are free for a reason, you know, and there's no such thing as a free lunch kind of thing. And that's certainly true with the internet. And, um, it's also a lesson that storage is not the same as preservation. You know, so much when you're a history student of understanding history comes from private diaries and private correspondences. Our modern version of that, uh, for better or for worse, is email. Uh, we send a lot of email to each other, but that's held by a third party. I mean, is there a way of thinking about this in the, the librarian community about how to preserve some of those correspondences so that we, it's not like we like we lose this stuff you know it's uh, you know after the death of um, written correspondences we really don't have individuals correspondences anymore except outside of the you know of course government institutions where here in the United States they're required to be preserved but you know private correspondences yeah I mean I mean I think this is um, this is a big issue that's facing society i think i think we're just on the cusp of realizing um you know the implications of moving to electronic communication i think that email is is actually kind of on the way out um you know so much uh, i just think of my my family members who are using whatsapp they're using text messages they're sending communications to each other using facebook and other social media platforms um so there are you know there are multiple different ways in which um, communication happens and that communication those platforms those uh, mechanisms are all controlled by major technology corporations and what my Oxford colleague Timothy Gartnash calls the private superpowers and you know when you click through those licenses um, which where you say I accept and uh, to allow you to you know have an account on those platforms and to use them you you're actually giving away ownership of that content to um, the, the the those technology companies you're allowing them to harvest your data um, the, the 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 record of interactions that you have on that platform you know every time you not only send a message or post an image onto Facebook, but every time you click like or do one of the other of those interactions, it's leaving a trace. It's leaving a digital trace that is being harvested and gathered and built into a profile of your online behavior. And as that online behavior extends to the internet of things, so um, not just your um, searching on the big search engines, but or to your, um, you know, the use of your credit card on online uh, e-commerce sites, but also to uh, things like wearable devices, uh, recording your health, things like Fitbits. You know, all of that data is being pooled and traded every day by these big corporations, and then used to target not just 
commercial advertising back at you. But now increasingly, we know through the activities of Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, targeting political campaigning back at you. So not just encouraging you to vote for a particular way, but giving information to help to suppress your voting um, in many cases. Um, And not just in the Brexit referendum of 2016 or the 2016 US presidential elections, but in uh, a variety of other um, countries across the world, these kind of uses of what is known as big data for political ends and and to you know making these uh, tech companies even richer um, is is happening all over the place. So it, it it's a real worry for society, I think. So I want to turn to a la- uh, to the, my last question here. Um, maybe close on a soaring note. Uh, while I was a student at Indiana University, I was a history student. My specialization was in ancient history and Renaissance history, and uh, I was enthralled by the story of Pogis Bracciolini and Nicholas de Nicoli. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but... Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, they were two uh, Renaissance-era book hunters, and there's actually a book uh, of that was put together of their correspondences called Two Renaissance Book Hunters, uh, the letters of uh, Pogis Bracciolini and Nicholas de Nicoli. Uh, and they kind of scoured Europe seeking to rediscover lost ancient texts, and they they found many. And I believe there was a New York Times bestseller that won the Pulitzer called The Swerve about Bracciolini. Stephen Greenblatt. There you go. Yeah, I actually haven't read it, but I had read their their actual letters, uh, so maybe the primary source in this case. Um, but th- this is a great collection of letters, and you can almost feel the excitement that comes through their pens as they discover texts that hadn't been seen or read in uh, hundreds of years. Uh, they're rediscovering a lost history. This was like a real-life version of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I wanted to ask you, does such adventure still exist for those seeking to uncover lost knowledge? Or have we found most of what is lost? Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a very interesting question. You know, I, have there been discoveries like that in recent history? I, I think that you know that I think there have been discoveries um, like that. I, I think it's not lost knowledge. I think it's just a lot of the the discoveries that are being made. I mean, you know, the the discovery of Milton's annotated copy of the First Folio of Shakespeare, yeah, is a good example. Just a couple of years ago, by um, uh, you know uh, uh, an English scholar, Jason Scott Oran at Cambridge University, working with uh, American colleagues, identified um, a book that's been well known. You know, the First Folio, the copies of the First Folio of Shakespeare, sixteen twenty-three, are very, very well known, very well documented and studied. This one had was covered in ink annotations by a contemporary reader, and um, you know, these have been looked at by. You know, quite a few people, quite a few scholars over the years. It's held in a in a library in Philadelphia, and um, it took s- somebody who knew the hand of John Milton to identify the annotator as the great. Well, we started this conversation off, didn't we, with yes. um, your qu- quote from the Areopagitica? Um, so, you know, there are discoveries like this which um, are still there to be made. And I think, you know, there are plenty of the of that kind of discovery or almost seeing knowledge that's hidden in plain sight, if you like. 
you know, the, that book had been well looked after, well catalogued. It was available for everyone to see. The librarians had looked after it. They catalogued it, giving the best knowledge that they had. Um, and so, you know, there's there's all of that. There are still collections in private ownership that will come out and come into institutions to be, um, you know, made available again, painstakingly preserved by librarians and archivists, catalogued by them and made available to scholars, you know, written up in podcasts or blogs and tweeted and digitized and um, you know my colleagues in the profession work really really hard to make it easy for students and scholars to access this kind of knowledge so all of that continues to go on and I think one of the exciting things about the digital world is as we scan and digitize more and more of our analog past the ability to use new kinds of scholarship, algorithms, you know, text and data mining, visualization techniques, um, other forms of heritage science to um, understand the material culture of the past in new and interesting ways. I think these are going to open up new forms of discoveries, perhaps not quite as romantic or um, you know exciting as it was for Poggio Bracciolini and his colleagues in um, uh, you know in Renaissance Italy, but. Um, you know, I, I, I think those discoveries are going to be there. And I think they will change our understanding of the world we live in. And they'll change our understanding of the past. Well, I think we have to leave it there. Mr. Ovenden, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for uh, the conversation. I've really enjoyed it too. That was Richard Ovenden. He is the director of the famed Bodleian Libraries at Oxford University and the author of Burning the Books, A History of the Deliberate Destruction of Knowledge, which is now available through book retailers everywhere. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We also take email feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. They do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thanks again for listening.